We begin a new sermon series today on the book of James, and um, I'm always excited to start a new book because it's, it's fresh and new. I always get tired when we reach the end of an old sermon series and uh, pumped up to start a new one, so I hope you'll enjoy studying the book of James with me. James is often referred to as New Testament wisdom literature. In the Old Testament, you have five, five wisdom books. Psalms, which teach you how to pray. Proverbs, which teach you how to live. Job, which, which teaches you how to suffer. The Song of Songs, which teaches you how to love. And then finally, Ecclesiastes, which teaches you how to enjoy. And James, being the only sort of New Testament wisdom book, is kind of a hodgepodge of all five of those. I mean, you learn, you learn about praying and living and suffering and loving and enjoying. It's all kind of tied together. But there is one very peculiar feature about the book of James. In fact, it's striking. It's, it's striking. It's so strange. And it's this, that not one time in this book does James ever mention the cross of Jesus Christ. Not once. Not one time does he mention the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's kind of a big deal, isn't it? I mean, the reason that we have a a Christian faith at all is because those events happen. The reason we have a New Testament is because those things are are real. Why would James leave something as, as crucial and as significant as the cross and resurrection out of his entire letter? There can only be one answer to that question, and that is he assumes that the readers of the letter, the hearers of the letter, that they, they already know the gospel and believe it. They've heard it. They believe it. So in this letter, James is not defining what the gospel is or defining the essential properties of the Christian faith. Rather, he's talking to us about how then should we live in light of the truth of the glorious gospel. How do we walk in, in wisdom uh, accordingly, the wisdom of the gospel? One other thing to note before we start the letter and the book, there's one theme, uh, there's one really umbrella category under which the entire letter can be subsumed. He talks about a lot of things in the letter, of course, chapter 1, how to endure suffering, chapter 2, what is a living faith versus a dead faith, chapter 3, how do we use our words and our speech But the one concern that captures pretty much everything this letter is about, do you know what it is? It's simply one word, and that word is integrity. Integrity. By by integrity, James means that we live with consistency. James ends up, I'm pretty sure, he coins a term that in the Greek language up until this point of human history had never nobody ever said this word before. He coins a term in chapter one, verse eight, and I'm reading today, and then in chapter four, verse eight, quite a few weeks in the future here, and that word is double-minded. Double-minded, a person who who um, who wants to be cozy with the world and has a comfortable life in this world but still wants to be a friend of God and, and still wants to be in the kingdom of God, James says it's impossible to be double-minded and, and be his child, in essence. It's impossible to do that. You can't have a divided allegiance. You must serve, as Jesus says, one master or the other. You can't serve two. So throughout the book, he's going to be just pushing us. It's one of the most provocative, it's probably the most provocative book in all the New Testament because he's going after 
religious Christian people, church-going folk like ourselves, and pressing us in, in sometimes very uncomfortable ways that you have to live with integrity, with unflinching, consistent allegiance to your God. Let's read in verse 1 as we consider today how, uh, how to respond to trials and sufferings. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom. So what you see already happening, the way that James orders his letter, he uses these so-called linking words. One word which may end a sentence and then begin the very next sentence. So here, I was trying to highlight it as we were reading it. Perseverance at the end of verse 3 leads to perseverance at the beginning of verse 4. Or lacking at the end of verse 4 leads to to lacks at the beginning of verse 5. If you've ever read James before, you know it's kind of difficult to find a logical progression of thought in his writings. Very difficult. In that sense, it's very similar to the Proverbs where you may have one proverb and then another one and another one, and you have no, no idea how they all interrelate. James is kind of that way. The, the only clue that we get are these linking words that run throughout, that tie, that, you know, tie the pieces to each other. So if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. 9 through 11, these, three, these next three verses have always perplexed me why he throws these in here, but let's read it. He says, Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich... Verse 10, and by this, he probably is referring to rich Christians. The rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, it blossoms, its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. And in the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. What does he mean? The Bible never romanticizes poverty. It never says that poverty is a virtue in and of itself. But Jesus does say, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's a reason why God has chosen the poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith. Why do you think that is? Well, because when you've got nothing and you have no resources and you have nowhere else to turn and nothing to fall back on, Uh, who oftentimes will turn to God. That's why the poor in this world often have faith, while we rich people, probably characterizes all of us, even if we work a day job at McDonald's, we rich people often don't have faith. I mean, even today, this pattern emerges around the globe. You see, Christianity is a flourishing in those places where uh, there are many poor people, and it's atrophying, in rich, affluent Western Europe. 
Who are these rich people? What is their identity that he's, he's saying, uh, that according to James should take pride in their humiliation? Who are, it's not as though you, you cross over this magic line from poor to rich in the Bible. There's a spectrum. Uh, it's not like all of a sudden, whoo, you're, you've made a certain amount of money and the Bible says you're wealthy. The general principle is that the more money you have, the better your career is going, the more you move up the career ladder, the less and less you feel your need for God. But James is saying in this perplexing set of verses that rich people should rejoice in, thank God for, glory in those things which humiliate you. In other words, those things which cut you down to size. Our humiliations show us that we may be coming a little too self-dependent. We may have been getting too big for our britches. And they remind us that everybody dies. The man who dies with the most toys, he takes none of them with him. He still dies. Verse 12, let's quickly move on. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose us to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he he created. There's a a pretty big study which came out a few weeks ago. It It caught national news and attention. It was a sociological study done by psychologists or sociologists or maybe a combination of the two. The study covered Instagram. What does Instagram do to us? What are its effects on us? And their conclusion, if you just boil it down, was pretty simple. And their conclusion was that Instagram leads to depression. It doesn't take a whole lot of thought to figure out why. Sure, um, imagine this scenario. It'll be very difficult to imagine this scenario. I'm sure not. Uh, you binge watch an entire season of Netflix in one day. You never get off your couch. You never change it out of your pajamas. You eat a gallon of ice cream on your own. You can consume 10,000 calories. And then you pop on Instagram that evening. And what do you find? You find that everybody's marriage is awesome. And everybody's kids are incredible. And everybody's killing it at the gym, and you know, their business startup is, is amazing. They don't struggle. There's no pain and sorrow. You are going through pain and sorrow, and you're medicating it through uh, passive indulgence. And boy, their life looks awesome. It's 9 o'clock, and you haven't even taken a shower. And you look yourself in the mirror, and you say, what a mess I am. Social media, what these researchers conclude, it's kind of like a moving sidewalk. Um, You're already walking towards, in suffering, you're already walking towards depression or bitterness or both. But the 
But uh, social media is kind of like a moving sidewalk. It just helps you get there even faster. Not a day goes by that a Christian doesn't suffer a suicide in their family. Not a day goes by that a Christian doesn't hear a cancer diagnosis, a paralyzing accident, a sickness for one's children. How are we to respond to the sufferings in this life? You've heard a lot of sermons on this topic. I've preached a lot of sermons on this topic, but I've never preached one based on these verses. How, how does James tell us that we are to respond to pain and suffering? Well, he tells us three things. There is a perspective that we must adopt. There is a wisdom that God will, will supply and we will receive. And there's a practice that we must avoid. So a perspective, a wisdom, and a practice. Look at verse 2 to start off. First of all, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now, if you read that verse in isolation, um, it sounds as though James is utterly out of touch with the human experience. If you are in a very dark frame of mind, going through a very, very dark point in life, and you read verse 2, consider pure joy, my brothers and sisters, Uh, it can almost, it feels heartless and cruel. It seems as though James is a masochist. What? Woohoo! It's great to suffer. This is such a joyful thing. It, it, It sounds as though this is a man who just has no concept of what it's like to be a human. It's Is he unaware of the fact that the visceral emotion that we experience in pain and suffering is sorrow? Is he unaware of that? Of course he knows. You see, in verse 2, James doesn't say that you should feel joy. He doesn't say you should feel joy. He knows that you probably can't feel joy. And if you tried to feel joy, it would be you you manipulating your emotions. It would be fake. He says instead... I want you to consider. I want you to consider a new perspective on your sufferings. Consider this. He says, look, consider this. Look at what your sufferings can potentially accomplish in your life. Your sufferings and trials, he says, they will do several things. They will develop perseverance. They will develop maturity. They will develop completeness. And then he ends it with this strange phrase. He says, and they will make it so that you will be complete, not Lacking in anything. Now, there, there you have a very uh, striking paradox. Rankin Wilburn is a pastor of Crossroads, uh, Pacific Crossroads Presbyterian Church in L.A. It might even be Beverly Hills. But he has recently come out with this book on the doctrine of union with Christ. An amazing book uh, on a very neglected doctrine. Highly recommend it. Uh, union with Christ, the way to know and enjoy God. Commenting on this verse, he's the one that pointed out to me the, the strange paradox. He says that in suffering, you and I, we have lost something. Presumably, we have lost something very valuable to us. But this has happened, James says, so that you might not be lacking. You have lost and are lacking, but this has happened so that you might not be, might not be lacking. The implication being that there is something you don't have right now that you desperately need. There is something that God knows about you which is missing and lacking in you right now 
that you desperately need, something you didn't know that you need. You don't know the full extent of your incompleteness, James says. And this, whatever this thing is that we need so badly, um, God knows. And he says that you must lose in order to gain it. What is it that we need? Over my 41 years of life, there have been, you know, lots of different sufferings and trials that I have gone through that have tested my faith and you know, put me all the way to the end. I mean, one of the ones that stands out the most um, was Hannah. My oldest daughter had a brain tumor, and she ended up going into the hospital for high-risk uh, surgery to have the removal of that tumor. And I, what I remember through that experience, but especially when we were in the waiting room, just praying, calling out to God, begging God to be merciful, is that a peace came upon me. I really did feel in a visceral way the peace of God and, and the rest of God. I had a confidence that no matter what happens, I mean, if, if there, whatever happens with a surgery, uh, I can rest in God and rest in the goodness of God. I, I'm sure you've had things like that come into your life in the moment of suffering that weren't there at, at its beginning. Um, you know, this is God's chosen path for making us mature and complete. What are the other things that suffering brings? It, it, it brings humbling. It shows you your own flaws. It shows you your own limitations. It teaches you humility and self-knowledge and self-awareness. It can make you empathetic. There's, you can't truly minister to another person without having truly suffered substantially beforehand. That's the prerequisite. So what James is saying here at the beginning of the letter is, I want you to consider this fact, that suffering, if you handle it right, can give you something you presently lack. You are incomplete without it. And it's a completeness, an integrity, that God wants to build into your soul. By the way, you never tell, you never read James chapter 1 verse 2 to a grieving person. Never. Um, James 1, 2 in these verses is for your own internal processing as you are working through grief and suffering. The Proverbs 27, verse 14 applies here. Anybody know 27, 14? It says that if anyone loudly blesses their neighbor early in the morning, it will be taken as a curse. In other words, there, you can say the right words at the wrong time in the wrong tone I believe that James 1, 2, it's always the wrong time um, unless they basically tell you it's okay to say it. Just pray that they'll get the perspective. Pray that this, the ordinary process of Christian growth will be sped up, will be turbocharged through the ordeal that they're going in. So that's first perspective. Secondly, there is a wisdom God supplies which will help us get through suffering if we ask for it. And I'm taking this from verse 5, where we read, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. The best way that I've heard this wisdom that God supplies to help us through suffering, the best way I've heard it explained, somebody says, it's kind of like free climbing a mountain or a rock. And when you free climb, you don't have any gear I mean, it's just you and the, and the, the rock. I mean, I imagine a huge rock face like El Capitan in Yosemite, and you have no equipment. How does free climbing work? 
Well, in free climbing, you have to put your foot in one place, and then your other foot in another place, and your hand in one place. And then in order to move up, you've got to, you've got to find a new handhold. You get two footholds, two handholds, and then you have to keep three in place while you grope for, for another one. And if you've ever seen somebody free climb before, you know it's very, very slow. Because what's the image? You're just slowly groping for the next thing to hold on to. And it's very slow. It almost looks like they're flies on the wall, like they're not even moving, but they are slowly toehold by handhold. One, two, three, and four. That's how we get through intense suffering. Like a free climber, God provides the wisdom to help us navigate the route. He provides, I guess, the insight, the sight, the knowledge to find the next handhold or toehold. To find, what are these toeholds and handholds usually? It's, they're passages of scripture. He'll give you just one scripture that you can hold on for the day. Oftentimes, it's a scripture you can only hold on for the day. Um, He will give you insights from your friends, which are comforting, which help you along. Um, But it's very slow, and often you feel like you're dangling the wind, and you can't hold on. You're not going anywhere. But everyone has to find their own route. At least that's what I found with suffering. You can't just take somebody else's how-to book and make it through. Everyone has to find their own way, and it's the wisdom of God which helps you do so. Christians have agonized for centuries over verse 6, if you want to look at it with me. Verse 6, what does this mean? That when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. We're supposed to ask and not doubt. Frankly, is that even possible? When you are in suffering, suffering terribly, is it even possible to like have some pure 100% faith confidence that's just epistemologically, there is not even an ounce of doubt inside of it? I, I don't even think that's possible. And I don't think that's what Jesus expects. I want you to recall the prayer of that father whose son was possessed by the demon and the disciples were trying to exercise the demon and the demon wouldn't come out and and Jesus says out loud, all things are possible for him who believes. And then the guy says, and I I believe, Lord, help me in my unbelief. It's that mixture of I do and I don't, but but I am committed to you. Weak faith is real faith and that has always been a faith that Jesus has accepted is is true. Now, in verse 8, James defines the particular kind of doubt he has in mind here as double-mindedness, or better put, double-heartedness, as we referred to at the beginning of the sermon. When we uh, ask God for wisdom, it has to be from a place where we are truly his disciples and his servants, Um, We can't serve both God and anything else. The category throughout the letter describes somebody who's divided in their loyalties, somebody who has like half of their house on the rock and the other half of their house on the sand. They lack spiritual integrity. That person, James says, should not expect an answer when they ask for wisdom. 
But when we ask God for wisdom, you see what he calls God here? It's almost as if he is subtly acknowledging that, of course, you're going to feel doubts here. Do you see what he calls God? He says, you are calling, you are asking the father of lights for wisdom. He's the father of lights. Though you are bathed in the darkness of shadows, and though it may seem like God is is dark up there too. No, he's the father of lights who, verse 5, gives generously to his struggling children without finding fault, which means he doesn't become annoyed at our continual requests. Um, he, He answers them. He gives us the wisdom needed to make it through our sufferings. If I could talk for just a minute about our building situation here at All Saints, I do believe Uh, Not only is this wisdom helping us through sufferings, God also provides a wisdom to help us through our uh, navigating perplexing situations. For those of you who don't know the backstory, so we ended up, about two years ago, we decided as a congregation to sell this building to an assisted uh, living care facility. Um, And then we were going to move around Eustick and Milwaukee, uh, over a little further to the west in Boise. That was two years ago, about a year and a half after the deal began, it fell through. And at that point, we as elders were asking the question, Lord, what do you want us to do now? It, should we, is this a sign from you? Uh, sh- do you want us to stay on this property? Should we look to renovate this building or build another building or build a Christian wing or bring, build a sanctuary? What do you want us to do? So we kind of went back to the drawing board and just tried to be humble and ask the Lord, is there anything here that you're trying to tell us that, that we're not presently aware of? And we wrestled with that for the last six to nine months. And then I told you just a few weeks ago, we, we invited two gentlemen, and one of whom was the, Mike Kelly, director of the church planning network for, the, or for our presbytery, and the other, a church planner and pastor, Kyle um, Parker from Coram Deo Presbyterian Church in Spokane. They came in to kind of be an outside set of eyes and to help give us wisdom as, a, as an unbiased um, group and just provide an outside perspective. Throughout all of this process, we have prayed that God would give us wisdom. And you have prayed <laughs> that we would be given wisdom from the Father of Lights. Well, this Tuesday, we finally reached a decision, um, which we believe to be the fruit of many, many prayers for wisdom. And that decision is this. Lord willing, we are going to sell this property. We believe that we should sell this property. And Lord willing, we are going to move west. Who we are going to sell the property to remains to be seen. (laughs) Um, But it's nothing for God to send a buyer. And we will be actively pursuing buyers. Where we're going to move to out west remains to be seen. You know, how far west an existing building, new construction, all of those are reasonable questions, and I don't have the answer to them. But we know we are committed to selling, to moving, and then as aggressively as possible to planting a church in downtown Boise. Um, those are our plans. Sell, move, plant. And I'm excited about <laughs> those plans. I really am. And I know for some, um, that's scary, but... I think for us, we're excited. 
Now, the bylaws of our church give you, the congregation, the right to decide on the sale of property, the purchase of property. So ultimately, as it should be, the decision rests with you. But this is the direction we think we should head. And I want to thank you for praying for us and especially for being patient with us because it has been a long ordeal and for bearing with us and bearing with, with our weaknesses, especially my own. There's a perspective God gives. There's a wisdom he supplies. Finally, there is a practice we must avoid. Verse 13 on the next page. When you are tempted in trials, James says, no one should reply by saying, God is tempting me. James here is recognizing something we've all observed before, and that is suffering doesn't automatically make you a better person. (laughs) Suffering, apart from God's grace, suffering usually makes you a more bitter and more self-pitiable and more angry person. And in many cases, suffering will drive us to addictive things to try to medicate our pain. Sometimes it's fairly innocuous, like binge-watching Netflix and eating ice cream, but you know, a lot of other times it's, it's not. It's, it's alcohol and it's porn and it's drugs and it's um, hedonism. It's all of that. And the, sometimes we get into trouble, and in those troubles we blame God, and we say, well, God's the one who tempted me. God, God did this. I mean, isn't he supposed to provide a way out, every, out of every temptation and look where I am now? It, it must be God's fault. Or maybe a more common way we say it is, I used to believe in God, and then I went through some terrible suffering, and I just couldn't believe in God after that, which is really a kind of way of believing in, or blaming God for his non-existence. For all of us, and Jim said it earlier today, there will come a time when things are so bad in your life it will call into question the goodness of God and the existence of God. It will not seem as though God is your father, either because of his silence or because of the sheer randomness of events that brought about the catastrophe or the seeming um, meaninglessness of the suffering that you're going through. Um, That will cause you to question his care for you. When your life is getting dark and things are getting very bad, James says, don't say, this is your fault, God. Remember, instead, suffering is the moment of moments to determine whether or not your faith is real. The furnace of affliction, the heat from the furnace, is going to do one of two things. It's either going to burn away the dross that is on the gold, or it's going to vaporize the fool's gold, the pyrite, and make it vanish. This is how we find out if our faith is genuine and not. South African pastor Andrew Murray was visiting England in the year 1895 when he began to be uh, suffering from a previous back injury. While he was there, a woman came to him, herself in great trouble, and wanted to know if he had any counsel or advice for her. He wrote on a piece of paper then, in response to this, he says, I've been, I, I write this down for her and pass it on to her. I've been writing this for my own encouragement, and this is what jo- uh, Andrew Murray wrote. In the time of trouble, say, first, God has brought me here. God has brought me here. It is by his will I am in this difficult place, and there's a purpose. Next, he will keep me in his love, 
and give me grace in this trial and enable me to behave as one of his children. Then he will make the trial a blessing, teaching me lessons he intends me to learn and working in me the grace he means to bestow. And last, in his good time, he can bring me out again. In his good time, he can bring me out again. How and when he knows. I am here by his, I am here by his appointment and his keeping under his training for his time. All because Jesus Christ, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Jesus Christ, friends, just to bring it to a close, I mean, Jesus didn't think the cross was, wow, it was great to suffer like this. But he considered it pure joy in taking your and my sins to the cross. How do I know that God will keep me in his love and bring me out in his time? Is that wishful thinking? No, because Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning his shame. He considered it pure joy, though the cross to him and the grave felt like pure hell. He considered it pure joy, though it felt like pure hell. Don't forget Jesus and your sufferings. The same Jesus who appeared to his little brother. Anybody remember how long it took for James to actually acknowledge that Jesus was Messiah and Lord? He thought Jesus was out of his mind when they were brothers. And it was not until one of the resurrection appearances was made specifically to little brother James, where Jesus said, Behold, I died and now I am alive. And I endured for you so that in your sufferings you'd stand strong and become mature and complete, not lacking anything.